Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and I'm thrilled to have with me again today Dr. Stephen Freiberg, one of our chief residents who is just a matter of days away from being done with his residency and launching into his cardiac anesthesia fellowship. We'll be sad to lose him, but Duke will be uh, truly will benefit from getting to have him with them, uh, and we'll, of course, be constantly trying to lure him back at the end of his year there. Uh, Stephen, welcome back to the show. Thrilled to be back, Jed. Thank you for all the very nice words. But overall, I had such a great time recording our last podcast, I just had to do another one. And indeed, it's a trend I hope to keep going. I'm thrilled to have you back. And of course, I should mention what we'll be discussing. And we are going to talk about arterial lines. In fact, we might say this is everything you wanted to know about arterial lines. Stephen has really uh, done some hard work putting together uh, a comprehensive presentation. We're going to talk about uh, indications, contraindications, some of the complications that can happen, uh, how to put in an A-line, how it actually works, what the waveform can tell you, and more. It'll be uh, an exciting time, so stay with us. I certainly hope I cover everything you could need to know about arterial lines. There's definitely a lot of information to include, but indeed, I hope I grab the important things. So I wanted to make this podcast because I love arterial lines. My wife has come to learn that if we're sitting on the couch together and I lovingly hold her hand, chances are I'm actually palpating her radial pulse. <laughs> it's a guaranteed way to bring some romance to the relationship. I'm sure it is. I will have to try it myself. And well, Jed, you're lucky I'm not trying to put an arterial line in you right now. Uh, in fact, when I do a case without an arterial line, I actually feel like I'm flying a little bit blinded. Now, don't get me wrong, as we'll talk about in a bit, not every case requires an arterial line, but an arterial line tracing can just give so much terrific information about the patient, it's an incredible tool to be able to utilize. So today I want to talk about the indications for an arterial line, discuss some of the potential complications of an arterial line, mention a few words about placement technique, touch on how an arterial line actually works so that we can get into arterial blood pressure waveform analysis and interpretation. That sounds fantastic, Stephen. I think this will be really useful. Why don't we start with indications? Why would you place an arterial line in a patient? It's important to keep in mind arterial cannulation with continuous pressure, transduction, and waveform display remains the accepted reference standard for blood pressure monitoring. This is despite the fact that it isn't in fact, more costly, has the potential for more complications, and requires more technical expertise to initiate and maintain than non-invasive monitoring, monitoring does. But this is the real measurement of blood pressure. That's right. So instead of a cuff, which is measuring oscillations and then using a formula to come up with a pressure, this is actually measuring the pressure in the artery itself. Exactly. Okay. So the overarching concept is that an arterial line is indicated anytime one expects moment-to-moment -moment blood pressure changes and where it's critical to rapidly and nearly instantaneously detect these changes and be able to act upon them. So this would include patients who have severe cardiac or pulmonary disease who couldn't tolerate these hemodynamic changes, a hemodynamically unstable patient, or the potential for hemodynamic instability during the case. This would include surgeries with potential for large fluid shifts, large blood loss, or other, sudden, or other large sudden cardiovascular changes. Another indication could be more so that it's just necessary to be able to rapidly detect these hemodynamic changes. So for example, with intracranial surgery, often we don't expect large fluid shifts or necessarily even large blood loss, but a sudden change in blood pressure that could be detrimental to cerebral perfusion is something you'd want to know about immediately and be able to act upon. That sounds right. And some people might think, well, you know, I can put my blood pressure cuff in the operating room every one minute, and that's pretty rapid, pretty close to instantaneous blood pressure monitoring, but there's downsides to that, obviously, right? So you can cause harm to a patient's skin on their arm if you're cycling a blood pressure every one minute during the course of an entire case, and not every blood pressure cuff every time can come up with a pressure, and you wouldn't want it to fail you in the moment when you needed it most in a really crucial case. Exactly. All right. Other indications would include the need for repeated blood sampling, failure of non-invasive blood pressure measurements, and this can be due to problems with cuff fit in a morbidly obese, in a, excuse me, a morbidly obese patient, 
if the patient has an underlying arrhythmia, can often affect how well a non-invasive blood pressure cuff can read. And also a lack of pulsatility in the patient, this namely referring to the growing number of patients who have ventricular assist device or VADs. Another factor is patient positioning. You have to consider either how positioning might affect non-invasive measurement or if the patient positioning might preclude being able to put in an arterial line easily. So it's one thing if you expect the case to be a stable case from a hemodynamic standpoint and you have access to both arms. So therefore, if there was a sudden unexpected change, you could in fact relatively easily obtain arterial access. It's quite another issue if there's a question in mind about how things will go hemodynamically and both arms are tucked or the patient's turned laterally with the arms wrapped, it would be very difficult in that case to put an arterial line in if you need one. I agree. So I say overall, if in doubt, put one in. I think you're unlikely to regret having it, and that would be unless, of course, the patient has a complication from an arterial line. Which complications from arterial lines are indeed rare, but as we know, everything in medicine has risks, so they're worth mentioning. But before we even get to the complications from arterial lines, I think it's worth briefly mentioning the contraindications to arterial line placement. All right. So, yeah, that's great. Let's talk about those contraindications. When would you not put an arterial line in? So I think this essentially boils down to either if there's a problem with the site or the patient has underlying vascular problems. So you wouldn't want to try and cannulate at the site of a full thickness burn if there's infection at the site. If the patient has a synthetic vascular graft at the place you're trying to cannulate. And the other consideration is primarily issues with vascular integrity. Whether the patient has a vasculitis like thromboangitis obliterans is classically cited, Raynaud syndrome, inadequate collateral circulation to the extremity. All these overall being relative contraindications, but certainly worth thinking about before placing an arterial line. Sounds right to me. What about potential complications? You mentioned that one time you might regret putting an arterial line in is if a patient develops a complication. It's rare, but what are those complications that can happen? So there's several that have been reported in literature, and these would include, and probably the most concerned about is distal ischemia from the place that the arterial line is placed, is actually cannulated. Other considerations would be a pseudoaneurysm formation, formation of an AV fistula, hematoma formation, Hemorrhage from the arterial line, which is a valid consideration. Make sure that the connections between the tubings are tight because otherwise you basically have an arterial blood vessel in continuity with air. So that one is, in fact, important. Other concerns would be arterial embolization, local infection or sepsis from the line, causing peripheral neuropathy. And another important complication is misinterpretation of the data. Tell me, what does that mean, Stephen? So... Like any monitor that we use, there is limitation to how well the person is able to interpret that monitor. To make clinical decision on a monitor that you don't properly know how to interpret could certainly cause patient harm. I think that's right. I'll give you an example. I responded once to a call in our PACU uh, when I was the intensivist on call because there was a patient who uh, was persistently hypertensive. They were trying to treat the hypertension to bring the patient's pressure down. They'd given a lot of labetalol, and the patient was still hypertensive. They sort of had come down a little bit, but they were worried about the the blood pressure. And when I came, the first thing I did was they were going off the A-line, and the first thing I did was ask about a cuff pressure, and they said the cuff pressure wasn't correlating, so they were just going with the arterial line, which, as you mentioned, Stephen, the arterial line is the gold standard, so that's why they were doing that. But, of course, when I checked the zero on the arterial line, which I'm sure we'll get to, but when I turned to see if it had been zeroed, it had not. It was actually reading falsely. So you have to make sure that, as you say, the device that you're using, in this case the arterial line, is giving you accurate information before you act on it. Exactly. And we'll talk a little bit later in the podcast about how to ensure that. So luckily, the complication rate from arterial line placement is very low. The widespread application of invasive arterial pressure monitoring in anesthesia and intensive care is related, no doubt, to the extremely good safety record of this technique. Large clinical investigations confirm the low incidence of long-term complications after radial artery cannulation, in particular the small risk of distal ischemia, which is probably less than 0.1%. A recent study last year in anesthesiology 
was a retrospective study of nearly 63,000 patients for which there was a total of 21 vascular or nerve complications. What was curious was the study was actually underpowered to describe risk factors for developing complications, but some of the ones described would include factors like a large catheter size, active vasospastic arterial disease, thrombocytosis, protracted shock with associated high-dose vasopressor administration, prolonged cannulation, and infection. All right. So what about different sites of cannulation? Are there any different complications depending on where you place the arterial line? Absolutely, and many of which are worth mentioning separately. So the radial artery is the most commonly accessed really because of ease of access and tip from a geographic standpoint and typically for actually placing the line. It's worth mentioning a word about the Allen's test. Now, several many physicians will perform the Allen's test to quote-unquote assure adequate ulnar artery collateral circulation. But the predictive value is uncertain. Patients with normal Allen's tests have had documented ischemic complications, and the converse is also true. A patient with an abnormal Allen's test have done just fine. So personally, I think I've seen one attending actually perform one. I'm not sure how much value it can give prior to placing an arterial line, but it can be an important component of your physical exam if it you find it meaningful. Yeah, I would say it's probably never wrong to do it, but you're right, I think very few people do it because the, the evidence that it's useful is pretty skim. Correct. Another potential site with specific complications would be the brachial artery. I think brachial artery cannulation can be controversial. It's very institution-dependent. And the concern is that you could be knocking out the total blood supply of the arm if you were to occlude or thrombose the brachial artery. The other concern is potential injury to the median nerve. And regardless of the actual incidence of this, it's a commonly tested item just in terms of understanding the anatomy of the arm. So it's good to remember brachial artery cannulation, there's potential risk for injury to the median nerve. But the most famous study from Bazaral and colleagues out of the Cleveland Clinic of 3,000 cardiac surgery patients actually called the brachial artery more reliable and that they had no difference in complications. And our chair will tell you at the Cleveland Clinic they're still routinely performing brachial artery um, cannulation for all their cardiac cases. And specific to a brachial artery cannulation, a longer catheter is better as it's a deeper vascular structure, and ultrasound can potentially be helpful in placing a brachial artery A-line. I can't emphasize that enough, Stephen. I totally agree with you. When I have seen people try to use the standard arrow kit with the wire that they use for radial artery cannulation into the brachial artery, what often happens is people have a lot of soft tissue in the upper arm. They compress that soft tissue. They're able to get the catheter in as they're compressing with the ultrasound. But as soon as they let up that pressure, that catheter can pop right out of the artery. So you really do, as you say, need to use a longer catheter. Some There actually are longer catheter kits available. Some people will even place a single lumen central line uh, for a brachial artery, arterial cannulation. Uh, you may have a specific kit for it at your institution, but whatever you do, I would recommend, as you say, against using just the standard small radial artery catheter. And the last site worth mentioning specific to complications would be the femoral artery. The complications would be similar to that of a femoral central venous line. Again, there's a high risk for concern, a high risk for infection at that site near the groin. But also worth mentioning is that puncturing the femoral artery must be performed below the inguinal ligament, and this limits the risk of arterial injury causing an uncontained hemorrhage into the pelvis or the retroperitoneum. Great. And the only other site that I can think of that is routinely used would be the axillary artery, very institution-dependent. We have some people here who have come from other places where they do that routinely. Some places prefer it over a brachial because it's more proximal. There are some more collaterals around it. And so if you're concerned about, as you said, with a brachial potentially cutting off the entire arterial supply to the arm, you often don't have that same risk. Uh, And so that's another thing that you may see out there used. Great point. All right, so we've talked about different places to put it. We've talked about some of the complications. What about how to do it? How do you actually put this thing in? What's kind of best practice in your mind, Stephen, for how to place an arterial line? So I know placement technique has been covered a bit in a previous podcast, but I'll just say hopefully a a few 
slightly quick, hopefully quick words about placement. And I should mention my love for arterial lines certainly began as a love-hate relationship, probably more on the hate side, because it can be an incredibly frustrating procedure. I've heard it called the great equalizer, the great humiliator. One attending said to me, you're only as good as your last A-line. And I've had periods of time when I couldn't miss. No matter the patient, that A-line was going in, and followed by stretches when I couldn't hit water if I fell out of a boat. (laughs) And I've been involved in cases where you'll have experienced attending physicians working on every extremity of a patient to try and get arterial access. It can be a very, very difficult procedure. So if you're a new learner, just stick with it and try not to get frustrated with yourself. It's advice I could take on my own, but I would give it to others. But anyway, some tips to help optimize your chance for success. Yeah, so what what do you think of in terms of how best to do it? I, I completely agree with you. I love the term, the great equalizer. I, as you have, when I was a resident, I, I've had times where I struggled, and so did my attending who had been doing it for 30 years. There is obviously uh, a, a learning curve. You get better in time, but you're going to have people who are really expert at arterial lines who get humbled by them from time to time. So as you say, if you're out there struggling with arterial lines, uh, you're in good company. Indeed. So first, you got to select your location. As we mentioned, radial artery is the most commonly selected, so that's really what we'll talk most about. But some of the other alternative locations would include the ulnar artery, brachial artery, axillary artery, dorsalis pedis, or posterior or posterior tibial artery, very commonly used in peds, and even the superficial temporal artery has been described. And that, Stephen, reminds me, we didn't when we were just talking about location before. Of course, we didn't mention the feet at all, but uh, that is another location, as you say, where people will. Uh, will go for an arterial line, especially if they can't get one in the arms or if there's a contraindication to using the radial artery. Some people will go for the dorsalis pedis pretty regularly. Absolutely. Next step, you have to pick your side. We'll often preferentially access the non-dominant hand for patient comfort and convenience post-op, but sometimes you might be limited by the surgical positioning or other factors. And all else being equal, go for the side that has the best pulse. Two caveats to pulse palpation First, never loudly proclaim how great a patient's radial pulse is because inevitably that's going to be the line you struggle with. So if an attending or someone asks me, how's the pulse, I often just respond normal or palpable, and that way you set your expectations pretty low. Set the expectations. This is always important. The other is that despite my recommendation to go where the pulse is best, sometimes you just have to go for it. I've heard people say that you'll never successfully cannulate an artery if you can't feel the pulse, and I suspect there might be – it definitely raises the level of difficulty, but I can tell you anecdotally I've put in arterial lines in pulseless or near-pulseless patients, so it can be done. That said, it will increase your chance of success where the pulse is best palpable, and again, ultrasound, which we'll talk more about, could be a good consideration in the setting of poor pulses. Yeah, I think that's, that's a good way to put it. Next, you have to choose your weapon. Some prefer the standard angiocatheter, which is basically just a IV catheter over a needle. Others prefer the integrated guide wire needle assembly. And I don't know that there's any true benefit to using one or the other. People have typically trained on one device or the other, and that, I think, helps determine their preference. But overall, I think there's benefit in learning to use both because you'll never know where you end up practicing and what will be available to you. The next and probably most important step is ensuring good ergonomics. Again, this is probably the most important thing. It's similar to an intubation. Your first shot is usually your best shot. So do whatever it takes to make yourself most comfortable. Use a wrist roll or an arm board to dorsiflex and secure the wrist. Put the table at a good height. There's no point in you hunching over to put in an arterial line, especially in a non-urgent situation. And then some providers actually like to face the arm head-on as if they're shooting billiards. I've watched some attendings sit in a chair. However you choose to do it, you want to be the most comfortable for the procedure. I completely agree. The only other thing I'd add is if you are using an ultrasound, which I know you're going to get to in a minute, that you want to have that ultrasound set up so that you can be comfortable. You And I've made this mistake myself where I just don't feel like taking the ultrasound all the way around and pulling it over all the cords. And so I've got the ultrasound you know, behind me. And then I'm turning around to the ultrasound and then turning back around to the wrist. You want to set it up so that you can – everything, the ultrasound, the probe, the height of the table, as you say, everything is lined up to make you as comfortable as possible. That will maximize your chance of success. Exactly. Next, if you're not using ultrasound, you have to palpate the radial pulse. 
And as simple as it sounds, there's no shortage of strategies for how to do this. Some like to spread two fingers to feel the course of the radial artery between them. Others will actually lie their entire finger parallel to the artery on top of it to try and feel the course of the, the, course of the pulse that way. I personally like to roll up to the very tips of my fingers to try and shrink the target area that I'm aiming for. But what I can say is the artery is almost always slightly more medial than you expect it to be. That's what I've found, too. When people miss, they tend to miss lateral. Exactly. Next is once you start making entry with your needle, I think you need to use a slow but purposeful approach. Obviously, you want to advance your needle slowly so that you don't miss the arterial flash, but the flip side is not too slow. Because it's an artery and therefore a thicker walled vessel compared to a vein, if you go slow enough, you might be able to brush the artery aside rather than puncture it. So I think you have to go slow, but with meaning. Yeah, and what I do actually, and I have certainly have no evidence for this, but I talked about this in a prior podcast, is I do a combination of those two. So I advance with small stabs is a, is a probably very inelegant way to put it, but I will advance quickly about a half a millimeter and then stop. And then I'll wait a second and then advance another half millimeter with a little jerking motion and then stop. And I think this allows you to try to puncture that artery without pushing it aside while at the same time giving the blood a moment to come up your catheter if you have actually entered the artery. Definitely. And then last to sort of talk about is your actual cannulation technique. There's the direct cannulation with an angiocatheter in which the catheter is basically threaded off the needle like an IV. And I think similar to successful IV placement, the thing to keep in mind is that there's a slight differential between the length of the needle and the length of the catheter. So even if you get flash of arterial blood in the catheter chamber, you should advance the whole apparatus another millimeter or so, and then also described as to actually rotate the needle 180 degrees, assuming your needle is bevel up, which it should be, and then advancing the catheter into the blood vessel. The other strategy would be use of an integrated guide wire system and like the arrow kit. And I think the most helpful tip for that is once you have arterial flash to lower your angle a bit before trying to advance the wire. And then once you're at wi- if your wire has advanced smoothly to once again advance the whole apparatus to try and avoid that differential between the needle and the catheter tip. Lastly is the fixation or the through and through technique. Some, which is basically you puncture both sides of the blood vessel and then withdraw the catheter until you have pulsatile flow and then either advance directly or use a wire to Seligenger technique the catheter into place. Some will actually always use this technique preferentially, but if nothing else, I think it's a great salvage technique where you might get flash, have trouble threading your wire. It might be worthwhile to try going through and through, backing the catheter out and trying to recannulate that way. And despite concerns about making two holes in the artery, it's not been shown to affect either the success rate or complication rate of cannulation. And I'll just, I have to say, Stephen, I can't disagree with you in terms of the data. I just cringe when I think of this as the, as the go-to technique. Why would you purposely make two holes if you don't have to? But I do agree with you that as a salvage technique, it's, it's, it's a perfectly acceptable way to go. Sure. And then, of course, worth mentioning is using ultrasound. It can be an invaluable aid, especially for the difficult lines. But I would advocate to actually use ultrasound preferentially from time to time, even in a patient who you don't necessarily predict there to be difficulty. People will often turn to ultrasound to save the day. But ultrasound-guided line placement, like anything else, takes practice. Being able to hold the probe, look at the screen, guide the needle without drifting the probe, again, takes repetition in its own right. So it's undeniably a great tool, but there is operator experience involved, and that's worth keeping in mind. But no doubt that ultrasound can absolutely help you with a tough line. And the other thing I'd keep in mind, or at least consider, is if you're putting an awake arterial line in, I would consider using ultrasound right from the beginning. I think it's kinder to patients. It's going to maximize your, your chances at success. If not under real-time guidance, at least to, to mark where the artery is. If you're doing it in an awake patient, even if you've numbed up their wrist, you want to avoid the kind of poking around and multiple passes opportunity. Uh, if you don't have to do that, you'd really rather not. And so I think if you have access to an ultrasound in an awake patient, just take advantage and use it. Great. So what about 
and let's going to kind of push you a little bit here and see uh, see how much of your AP physics you can remember, Stephen. But how? What can you tell us about how the actual arterial line transduction and waveform and interpretation works? So I'll definitely try my best. I'm probably stretching the extent of my physics knowledge for sure, but I'll try and break it down the best I can, which might just consist of me throwing out some fancy words, but hopefully I can explain those words well enough. Fair enough. So basically, when your heart beats, it causes a fluctuation of pressure that would cause pulsation of saline in a column. It's in the form of a pressure wave. And a pressure wave is like a shock wave. What is actually being measured isn't the blood flow per se, it's that shock wave moving through a column of fluid or essentially blood in the case of the human body. That pressure wave is measured by a transducer, which is usually a soft silicone diaphragm attached to what's called a Wheatstone bridge. There's your fancy term. And the Wheatstone bridge converts the pressure change into a change in electrical resistance of the circuit, and this can be viewed as a waveform on the monitor. And this waveform is actually built up by Fourier analysis, not to be confused with Fournier, who has a, has a much less fortunate eponym associated with him. Sure. But by Fourier analysis, it basically adds up a series of simpler sine waves of different amplitudes and frequencies to give you the wave you see on your monitor. Important to understand, though, is the system requires an appropriate natural frequency and dampening to avoid interactions of pressure waves that can inappropriately amplify or depress the true pressure measurement. So obviously there's more to it than that. That's probably about as much as I can offer, but some of those terms will be clarified a little bit more when we talk about things like interpreting the waveform and dampening. All right, that sounds good, and I think that that is more than enough in terms of anything that you might be asked on a board exam. So... How about the waveform analysis? How does that work? So now that we have a rudimentary idea of how it works, we can actually talk about analysis. But first to understand, and as Jed mentioned with his situation in the PACU, is that the arterial line system has to be appropriately zeroed and leveled. The terms zero and leveled are occasionally used interchangeably, but they're not exactly the same thing. They tend to occur together in the clinical setting, but the terms describe slightly different processes. So zeroing is exposing the transducer to atmospheric pressure via an open air fluid interface. That's when we open the stopcock to air, push the button on the monitor, it turns to zero, that's zeroing. Leveling is when we assign the zero reference point to a specific position on the symbolic fluid-filled column that is the patient's body. This is what we actually are concerned about from time to time in the OR that can falsely affect the arterial blood pressure measurement we're getting. Ideally, you want the transducer leveled to best estimate aortic root pressure. This is generally interpreted as mid-chest in the mid-axillary line, the so-called phlebostatic axis. But the more accurate position is actually considered 5 centimeters posterior to the sternal border. Now, sometimes we'll choose to level the transducer at a different point, for example, the ear for intracranial procedures, because by doing that, we're measuring the perfusion pressure or really the pressure at that point, and for an intracranial procedure, we might want to know what is the perfusion pressure of the brain. So where things can change is that if the transducer is a level higher than where you're wanting to measure, it will underestimate blood pressure at that point. And the converse is true. If the transducer is leveled at a point lower than what you're hoping to measure, it will overestimate the blood pressure. So for every 10 centimeter change from the axis of level or the axis that you're trying to measure, the art line will change about 7.4 millimeters of mercury. So this can be estimated about 1 millimeter of mercury per centimeter. And this is important to observe when you're interpreting your arterial blood pressure measurement, especially when we have the transducer at a static point and the bed gets moved up and down or the patient gets rotated. You absolutely need to pay attention to where your transducer is leveled. Absolutely. All right. So when you're trying to interpret the waveform itself, Stephen, what are the different things you look at and what information can it give you? 
and this is probably one of my favorite parts of looking at an arterial line, is really analyzing the components of the waveform. So we'll go through the components of the waveform step by step, and this might bring you back to medical school days, staying at charts of the cardiac cycle, but it is important to understand, and these can be viewed in slide one, the actual picture of what an arterial waveform looks like. And all these pictures were actually pulled from a website called Deranged Physiology. I think it's a great website that helps explain potentially complicated concepts in a pretty simplistic way. And we'll post these slides that Stephen's referring to on the website at along with this episode. Great. So the first component of the waveform is the systolic upstroke. That's the upward facing line of the arterial waveform. And this corresponds to ventricular ejection. And the slope of the line roughly correlates to blood flow through the aortic valve. So it can also give you an idea of how hard and fast the ventricle is contracting, the DPDT, so to speak. And so things that can affect the slope of that line can give you information about the aortic valve or or potentially even the contractility of the left ventricle. So a slurred upstroke might be representative of aortic stenosis or decreased contractility. And when you say DPDT, you're referring to the change in pressure over the change in time. In other words, how fast does that pressure change? Exactly. Okay. The next component of the arterial line waveform is the peak systolic pressure. This is the maximum pressure generated during systolic ejection, but then this is added to the reflected pressure from the rest of the vascular tree. So, for example, if the rest of the vascular tree is hardened and atheromatous, its poor compliance causes a powerful reflected wave, which is then summed to the pressure wave caused by the systolic effort of the ventricle, causing a higher peak systolic pressure. And and, th- sorry, Stephen, but is that when, when that happens... Do we do we think that that is still the true systolic pressure, or is that giving us a falsely elevated systolic pressure? That is still the true systolic pressure, and it may give a waveform that looks underdampened, and we'll speak a little bit more about that, but that's in fact the true reflection of what those hardened arteries are causing in the body. All right. Sounds good. The next component of the waveform is the systolic decline, and this is the rapid decline in arterial blood pressure as the ventricular contraction comes to an end. Okay. This is followed by the dichrotic notch. In a perfect circumstance, when measured at the aorta, this notch is very sharp, and it actually represents closure of the aortic valve. And the dichrotic notch position varies with where the arterial line is actually placed, and we'll talk quite a bit about that. But, assuming the cannulation site has not changed, a suspiciously low dichrotic notch could suggest poor vascular compliance or hypovolemia. Yeah, and the way I remember this or the way I like to think about it, Stephen, is that in order for the aortic valve to close, the pressure in the aorta has to supersede the pressure in the ventricle. So the faster the pressure in the aorta rises, the faster the aortic valve will close, and the the higher up your curve, the sooner your dichrotic notch will come. So if you have very low SVR, vascular resistance, the blood will run off, and you will not build up pressure into your in your aorta very quickly. It will take a while. You'll have to wait for the vas- the ventricular pressure to drop and for your aortic pressure to rise a little bit before that aortic valve can close. And so it will go farther and farther down and away from your peak systolic pressure on your waveform. That's exactly right. Following the dichrotic notch is what's called the diastolic runoff. And this is the rapid decline in arterial pressure as the ventricular contraction comes to an end. And again, a slurred, less sharp diastolic runoff can be associated with low SVR states or really almost any shock state, specifically a low SVR one. Okay. And then finally is the end diastolic pressure, which is the pressure exerted by the vascular tree back upon the aortic valve. And as we mentioned, a hardened, noncompliant vessels will cause this pressure to be raised where... The converse, a soft vasoplegic vessel of a septic patient, for example, will offer little resistance and the diastolic pressure will be lower. Another cause of a lower diastolic blood pressure would be a regurgitant aortic valve that would cause this pressure to be lower than normal because instead of meeting the aortic valve pressure wave, it has to travel all the way to the ventricles via the regurgitant jet. And as we know, the diastolic pressure is crucial for many things, not the least of which being coronary perfusion. So that number is really quite important. Exactly. 
Now, if you look at the entire area under this waveform or the curve, that corresponds to the mean arterial pressure, which when displayed on your monitor, it's actually roughly equivalent to the area under the curve, but averaged over a series of beats. This is the pressure least affected by dampening, by distal pulse amplification, or again, if the cannula is placed somewhere differently, and it's arguably the most important pressure to monitor because this is the perfusion pressure for most organs in the body, perhaps with the exception of the coronaries, which is determined by diastolic blood pressure, the mean arterial pressure is really the perfusing pressure that most organs in your body see. Okay. And then the last component to be to analyze is the pulse pressure, and this is the difference between the peak systolic and end diastolic pressure. A very widened pulse pressure could suggest aortic regurgitation or any sort of low SVR state like vasoplegia or septic shock, whereas a very narrow pulse pressure suggests cardiac tamponade or other sort of low output states like cardiogenic shock or massive PE or tension pneumothorax. All right. So something you hear described a lot or you hear people saying is, oh, the art line is over dampened or under dampened. What does that mean? Great point to discuss. So it's very important in being able to interpret arterial lines correctly is understanding dampening. So the natural frequency quantifies how rapidly the system oscillates, whereas a damping coefficient quantifies the frictional forces on the system and how rapidly it comes to rest. And you need dampening of the system to accurately pressure, uh, accurately measure the pressure in the system. But with an overdamped system, the waveform loses its characteristic landmarks. It appears unnaturally smooth with a, with a diminished or absent dichrotic notch. And overdamping results in falsely low systolic and falsely high diastolic pressure readings. And this can often occur when things lower the system's natural frequency. Examples would include air bubbles, small clots in the tubing, a long, narrow tubing, loose connections in the system, or a deflated pressure bag. That's one of my favorites. You come into a room, the A-line looks damped, and you look, the pressure bag has deflated. Absolutely. The opposite would be an under-dampened system, and this gives a characteristic peaked, narrow waveform. It overestimates systolic and underestimates diastolic blood pressure and can occur from an excessively long, stiff tubing or increased SVR of the patient. And there's examples of dampening in slide two. All right. And again, those slides will be posted on the show notes. The mean arterial pressure is far less affected by dampening. Again, if you're looking at your blood pressure and you're trying to determine if the system looks dampened or not, typically the mean arterial pressure is accurate regardless. So if you need at least a snapshot of information while you're trying to make a decision, that can give you some great information. So an over-dampened appearing waveform can also be the result of aortic stenosis, vasodilatation, low cardiac output states, or severe hypovolemia. So in order to determine if the waveform is a result of an overdamped system or is an accurate reflection of a patient's pathophysiology, a dynamic response mar- characteristic has to be tested. And what does that mean? So typically what you'll first see people do, and I don't know that it's necessarily wrong, is if the system looks dampened to just flush the system and see if it looks better. But a more specific way of testing the dampening of the system is to use what's either called the square wave, the fast flush, or the snap flush test. So what this is, depending on your transducer system, here at Hopkins we have sort of a squeeze tab. Other models I've seen, it's a pull tab. But you rapidly either squeeze or pull that tab, and it produces a square wave on your monitor. Following that, you observe oscillations after the square wave before returning to baseline. Two or more oscillations suggest an underdamped system, and this is illustrated in slide three, whereas no oscillations would suggest an overdamped system illustrated in slide four, and that is a really the most specific way to determine how your system is properly dampened. Yeah, I think that's a great way to go. Also, remember, you do want to make sure that your bag is pressurized before doing that test or else you won't actually get much pressure uh, going into the system. Correct. So, Stephen, you mentioned earlier that 
you get some effects on your pressure tracing depending on where the site of cannulation is. Can you tell me more about that? Absolutely. So this is the concept of distal pulse amplification. It's important because it allows you to interpret your arterial waveform better, and it's also very, very frequently tested. So essentially, the pressure waveforms from different cannulation sites have different morphologies due to the physical characteristics of the vascular tree, namely the residence and impedance of the vascular tree. And as the arterial pressure wave travels from the central aorta to the periphery, the arterial upstroke becomes steeper, the systolic peak becomes higher, the dichrotic notch appears later, the diastolic wave becomes more prominent, and the end diastolic pressure becomes lower. Thus, when compared with central aortic pressure, a peripheral arterial waveforms have a higher systolic pressure, a lower diastolic pressure, and a wider pulse pressure. And this is interesting to me because I personally would expect the opposite. If you're closer to the aorta, wouldn't your blood pressure measurement be higher? But what this is reflective of is the reverberation and the summation of the pressure wave through the system. And that's what creates a higher, sharper appearing blood pressure tracing. So I personally think of it as the farther away you move, essentially the more peaked and the more jagged things will look. And important to keep in mind is that the mean arterial pressure is usually only slightly higher at the aorta and again is the least susceptible to the effects of distal pulse amplification. So can't underestimate the importance of the mean arterial pressure. And again, I mentioned this is frequently tested, and I've seen test questions phrased in words, meaning that you have to be able to select an answer choice based upon the verbal description of the tracing, but I've also seen a question with which they'll give you different actual waveform traces, and I provided those waveforms in slide five. Great. That's very useful. Thanks, Stephen. So, Stephen, are there any specific disease states that have specific waveforms that you might want to point out to people that we may be getting into something that would be more useful for people to look at pictures of, but anything that sticks out or any examples you can give of something like that? Absolutely. A lot of pathologic disease states will give a specific arterial pressure tracing. For example, the bisphurion's pulse associated with aortic regurgitation. If the aortic regurgitation is severe enough, you'll actually get a double peak of your systolic upstroke. We won't get too much into it today, but it's definitely worth looking at. Miller's textbook provides quite a few examples of some of those pathologic waveforms. Also, I'll mention deranged physiology, again, has a lot of great examples of those waveforms. Great. So I think people can check those out if they're interested in more. Let's talk about how you can use the arterial waveform to help you make determinations. This is becoming more and more of a popular approach to trying to determine things like fluid responsiveness. Can you do that? And if so, how do you do it? Absolutely. And this is, as you mentioned, recently been investigated much more closely. And looking at these dynamic measurements is certainly imperfect, but having an arterial line allows one to try and dynamically measure fluid responsiveness. And an important distinction to make is just because a patient is fluid responsive does not mean they need fluid, but it could certainly also be the case that they do. So just to keep it basic, with positive pressure ventilation, inspiration causes an increase in preload, and that will effectively increase your systolic blood pressure, and these, and then during expiration, the blood pressure will decrease. And this can be correlated with the respiratory cycle on your arterial pressure tracing. One of the examples of these dynamic measurements is systolic blood pressure variation. The peak of the systolic blood pressure would be higher during inspiration and lower during expiration. And a difference of greater than 15 millimeters of mercury has been associated with volume responsiveness. Another way to look at it is by looking at pulse pressure variation, and a pulse pressure variation greater than 10% or so is associated with the same. Again, quite a few limitations to this, namely being the patient has to be positive pressure ventilated, or it's essentially meaningless. 
and most recently described as it requires tidal volumes of 8 cc's per kilo or greater. And now that's sort of a big no-no from the ARDS literature, so we're often not ventilating patients with tidal volumes that large. But it's something you could perhaps try temporarily, temporarily, or also recently described was using a Valsalva recruitment maneuver and looking at blood pressure changes during the maneuver. That's exactly right. So you can, as you said, do this for uh, a very temporary per- period of time. If you're running someone on 60 cc's per kilo, which you should be, that you can go up to 8 or 10 for a minute while you do these calculations and see if your patient falls into the volume responsive categories or a Valsalva, as you said. And then the other thing to keep in mind is that the these tests, while you're right, they are not useful looking at respiratory cycle variation with someone who's breathing spontaneously or not positive pressure ventilation. They actually do give you valuable information if you do a straight leg test while looking at systolic pressure variation and positive uh, and pulse pressure variation even in people who are not on a positive pressure ventilator. So you can get good information from your, your A-line. You just have to do the straight leg test along with these. That's a great point. And again, with none of these tests being perfect... I wouldn't advise making a clinical decision off that single variable, but in the context of your other measurements, your other hemodynamic changes, your physical exam, it can hopefully point you in a better direction. All right. Stephen, what is pulse contour analysis? So pulse contour analysis is really interesting. It's a newer technology that can be used either invasively through an arterial line or even there's models out there that are non-invasive that provide information through proprietary algorithms but give information like stroke volume variation or even cardiac output, and these might in fact be a better indicator of fluid responsiveness. We don't use them particularly frequently here. Our sister hospital at Bayview is using one of the non-invasive cardiac output monitors, but it can really, again, give a lot of great information. And all in all, what these systems are doing is interpreting the arterial waveform that we just talked about in order to make these calculations. All right, Stephen, we've covered a lot. Is there anything else that you think we should mention before we wrap up? I think just before we wrap it up, you just have to remember that an arterial line, like anything else, is best used when it's interpreted in the context of your other monitors. And that's one of the things that's so useful about it is you can use it to correlate with an arrhythmia, changes in an entitle, or changes in your pulse oximetry to give you the most information you can. And it's often easy to attribute things to artifact and anesthesia. But for example, if it looks like an arrhythmia on the EKG and the arterial line is also showing changes, it's probably real. All right. I think that's a great point. Anything else? What would you, uh, what do you want to leave people with kind of your take home points? I think just to try and summarize, and we did in fact cover a lot, but number one would be put an A line in if you predict hemodynamic instability poor tolerance of the patient to those hemodynamic changes, the need for weakened lab draws, or if the cuff just won't cut it. Don't put an A-line in where there's already badness if you can avoid it. Optimize your chance for success. It's probably more medial than you feel it, and always be patient with yourself. The transducer works by transmission of pressure waves via Wheatstone Bridge. The line needs to be properly zeroed, leveled, and the dampening assessed for proper interpretation. Pay attention to the waveform, not just the numbers, and incorporate dynamic analysis in your decision tree for assessing volume responsiveness. I think those are some great take-home points, Stephen, and you covered them really well. This has been great, an incredibly useful podcast. Thanks for coming back on the show. It was great. I was so happy to be back. Just want to give a big thanks to Dr. Jillian Isaac. She gives a phenomenal talk on monitors every year, and it was instrumental in helping me prepare this podcast. And as always, huge thanks to my co-residents and faculty, and of course, the patients to whom we're privileged to take care of. Thanks, Stephen. Thanks for all your hard work this year as a chief resident with us. Good luck in your cardiac fellowship, and be prepared for constant recruitment from us uh, throughout the year. All right, that's it for today. Remember, you can go to the website, ACRAC.com, A-C-C-R-A-C.com, where you can download this and every one of the episodes. And, of course, you can leave comments. Let us know, how do you place arterial lines? Did we miss anything? Is there anything about the interpretation of the waveform that you used that we didn't think of or didn't mention? Put comments there so everyone can learn from what you have to say. You can also email me at ACRAC at ACRAC.com. 
If you're a fan of the show and you haven't already, please consider going to iTunes and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. And new, there is a website called Patreon, or Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, which is actually is a great site and allows people to support artists and other creators of content that they uh, enjoy and they want to help support. So a friend of mine told me about this, and I created a page for ACRAC because as ACRAC has gotten more and more popular, we have more listeners, more people joining the mailing list, the costs of maintaining the site and the podcast have actually gone up quite a bit as well. I have no intention of charging for the content, but if you are a fan and you are so inclined, you can go to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C. And you can become a patron of ACRAC, so you can donate any amount of money that you want per month. And if you just have $1 to give, that would be totally fine and would really help uh, little by little to support the work that we're doing here. So think about it and consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC. All right. Thank you so much for listening. For the ACRAC podcast and Dr. Steven Freiberg, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Mini Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.